uh, we were learning about how much what we believe about the future shapes what we think, how we think, and how we live today. It's amazing. Uh, Whatever we have in our mind about what's going to happen in the future truly affects the way we look at circumstances, the way we look at life, the way we make choices. And this is part two. I want you to imagine for a minute that, uh, especially you kids, if you're here, if I had two soda cans in my hand, one in this hand, one in this hand, and I was before you and I had them out and I squeezed them as hard as I could, and one of them I was able to crush easily with my incredible muscles, the other one I, as much and as, uh, as buff as I am, I would, was not able to get that thing at all, not even make a little dent in it. Um, if you were looking at that, what would you assume? Well, you would pretty much make a quick assumption that uh, one is empty and the other is full. <laughs> One's got something in it, the other one doesn't. That's right. That's exactly right. Here's the principle of that. Inner strength is essential when you're under pressure. Inner strength, what's on the inside and how strong it is, is very essential when you're being pressured from the outside. And life is full of pressures. Physical issues in our bodies. Relational issues between people, family, friends, others. The pressures are immense. Financial pressures. Everybody feels that at some point. Spiritual pressures. Mental pressures. Emotional pressures. No one, nobody escapes life without getting squeezed. Nobody escapes life without getting some pressure applied to them. But people who are filled with hope, people who really do have a strong hope about the future, do so much better when bearing under the weight of pressure. We underestimate how much our view of the future shapes our lives today. That's what we talked about this morning. Take two people. I'll use the same illustration because I think it's so effective. Take two men. We put them in in the same job. They're working... A mundane job. It's a boring job. No vacation. 80 hours a week. Horrible working conditions. It's just a bad, bad job. Nobody would want this job. But you tell one of them, I'm going to give you $20,000 at the end of the year for the, if you work this job. You tell the other guy, though, I'm going to give you $20 million. Same circumstances, but guaranteed both of them will have a totally different work experience. One guy will hate it. He'll be grumpy all the time. He'll despise his job, probably give up. The other person will come to work early, whistle. He'll have a great time at work, and he'll go all the way through, all the way to the very end. Because he's looking ahead. Nothing is really different between the two of them. It's only this idea of hope. There's something in the future that they're looking at, and it changes today. It's not the circumstances that make you feel the way you feel. Your believed-in future determines how you process and deal with the circumstances that you face every day. There's a number of years ago, they apparently did a 
re- some research on this, on how hope affects rats. <laughs> and they did this experiment, and here's how they did it. They took two sets of laboratory rats. They placed them in two separate tubs of water. Um, the researchers left one set in the water uh, all by themselves and just left them there, and uh, they, after one hour, they all drowned. Sorry about that, animal lovers. The other rats were periodically uh, lifted out of the water and then returned, and they kind of went back and forth. Well, what, when that happened, the second, that second set of rats swam for 24 hours. That kept going for 24 hours. Why? Not because they were given rest, but actually because suddenly they had hope. <laughs> Those animals in their little brains thought if they could just stay afloat just a little bit longer, someone was going to reach down and get me out of here. See, if hope works with rats, then how much more does it work with us? When we have something in our future that we, we're grasping on, and especially when it's real. It's amazing what a little bit of hope can do in somebody. But let me just remind all of us, as we said this morning in review, Christian hope. When, when God talks about hope, biblical hope, the hope that God offers, oh, it's even greater and it's even more powerful. There is no hope like this hope. It's real hope. And there's a definition that we gave this morning from uh, the author, Pastor Tim Keller, late author, Pastor Tim Keller. Christian hope is a life-shaping certainty that our ultimate future is the eternal love and glory of God and the new heavens and the new earth. So again, Christian hope, we're not talking about the English word hope that we often use that uh, talks about uncertainty. I hope this happens. I believe this might might happen, but it might not happen. That's what usually how we use hope, but that's not what Christian hope is. That's not what God's hope is. Christian hope is it's a life-shaping certainty that our ultimate future is the eternal love and glory of God, meaning I'm going to love God, He's going to love me, and it's all about His glory in the future. Everything in my future is about loving God, Him loving me. This, that's, that's what my future holds. That's what I have to look forward to. And a real-life, material, new heaven and a new earth. I'm going to live in heaven, in the new earth with the Lord. That's my future. That's where I'm headed. That's my, that's my end right there. And when you have that kind of hope, here's the question. What can take you down? What can take you down? What pressure can uh, get so bad that it would squish you? When you have this kind of hope, you are much better to uh, equip to handle any pressure. You're also happier as a Christian. You're also healthier as a Christian. And we're going to look at tonight four ways that the Bible says that hope will help you handle the pressures of life. These four things from God's Word are very descriptive about what, if you have hope, what it will help you be able to do. So, for this message tonight, we're going to call these people, these Christians that that are full of hope, we're going to call them hopers, okay? Hopers. So, number one, here's what we see from God's Word. Hopers rejoice when there is very little to rejoice about. 
Hopers rejoice when there is very little to rejoice about. Look at what it says in Romans 12 and verse 12. Rejoicing in hope. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. All right, so in Romans chapter 12 here, we're diving into the middle of this rapid-fire list of Christian commands. Paul is just writing uh, one thing after another, things that Christians need to know. If you're going to go through this Christian life, here are the things you need to do. These are commands from God. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. In other words, be joyful because of your certainty in the future. Live your life in a joyful way. The future is always bright for a Christian. Always. When you stop and think about it, Christians have every reason to rejoice and no reason not to rejoice. Christians should be the most joyful people on earth. They should be. I mean, how does it reflect God when we live sad, miserable lives? Have you ever uh, seen or been in contact with a battered, abused wife? Some of our law enforcement guys have probably been there too often. Have you seen a battered, abused wife? Well, if you look on her face, you're going to see that they rarely smile. They feel trapped. There's, they're miserable in this situation. It's heartbreaking, and there's so many other features, so many other things you can just see written all over them, just misery and pain. But here's my question. For us, as the bride of Christ, has he ever been an abusive husband to you? Is he hateful or is he harsh toward you? Let me help you answer that question. We're going to look at Romans chapter 8. And this is an amazing chapter. And this is God's love pledge to his bride. We're going to start in verse 35 and pick it up there. I mean, we could literally read the whole chapter, but... Let's just look at these few verses. Romans 8 and verse 35, 36, 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I love that more than conquerors. It means super conquerors. Uh, it doesn't mean, it, 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 it means you can go through anything in life, not just in a little way, not just bearing it, but actually with momentum. I love what one commentator said about this verse. He said, in Christ, we can... We make slaves out of our enemies and stepping stones out of our roadblocks. That's how we can live. Uh, no matter what bad thing happens, God can use it in our life for something amazing and something good. Verse 38, For I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. He threw that part in just in case he forgot anything else. Nor any other thing created at all. You cannot think of anything shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Now, does that sound like an abusive husband? (laughs) Sure does not. God says that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He even gave all these lists of earthly things, spiritual things, future things, every category of things. None of them could separate us from the love of God. See, life may not be how you want it to be at the moment. But that doesn't mean God has taken His love away. Now, I know that there are big things in life that are very, very painful. I fully understand that. But when you look at the future, when you look with eyes of hope, when you lay hold of hope, then you realize that this right now that we're going through, this pain, this big pain, is only momentary. It's temporary. It's momentary pain, and therefore I can rejoice in hope. And let me be clear, we don't rejoice in the evil that happened. We're not rejoicing in the the bad thing that's going on. We don't rejoice in all the, the bad stuff, but we rejoice in hope, it says. You're looking ahead, you're this certainty about the future, and you can rejoice in that. You can actually be joyful. This is not faking it, this is real. Sometimes you might feel like you're faking it, uh, but it's not faking it. As a Christian, we know the future, and it's hope. It's hope. This is not blind optimism. It's not denialism. It's calculated. It's calculated hope. I'm certain my future is in the hands of a loving God, and therefore I am not moved. Even if I go through trouble, I'm going to be okay. Johnny Erickson Tata, quadriplegic. She's bound to a wheelchair, and she has been since she was a teenager. She suffered some huge depression in the early years because she uh, just was so devastated by this accident and wondering why God would let this happen. And then one day something changed, and it was hope. God came flooding in and realized, she realized that this was given to her as something that she could use for God's glory. And here's what she said. This is her quote, one of her quotes. She says, God has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. See, here's what Johnny did in that moment. She learned to rejoice in hope. To thank the Lord for holding her, even though she doesn't have the healing right now. And by the way, Johnny will have the healing someday. And she talks about that. In heaven, I'm going to throw off this wheelchair and I'm going to run to Jesus. Really, folks, is there anything that can take down a Christian? Paul tried to list everything he possibly could think of in every category of things. There is nothing. There is nothing. And after reading that list in Romans 8, I can't think of one thing that's big enough. To separate you from God's care. We are not victims. We are victors. So that's the first. Hopers rejoice when, it, when there's not much to rejoice about. But number two, the Bible says that hopers are believers who rise above doubt. Hopers are believers who rise above doubt. Romans chapter 4 and verse 18. Here's what God says. Who, against hope, believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Now, as we mentioned this morning, this is referring to Abraham. Abraham, who, against hope, believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. 
Abraham was given a, a promise that would come in the future. You will have a child, Abraham. But it was humanly impossible. He was old. His wife was too old. She was barren. It, it was just, humanly speaking, absolutely impossible. But Abraham had a choice. Do I believe in the character of God? Do I put my hope in what God has said and know that He's trustworthy? Or do I look at the circumstances? Do I look at my body? And do I look at her body and I say, it's impossible. That's the choice we're faced with every single day. He, he had the attacks of doubt just like you do and I do. But he was confident in the promise keeper. And he had a hope when there was no really reason to hope, humanly speaking. Let me, just, let me just remind everybody here that doubt is just a feeling. It's not gospel truth. Did you know that the thoughts and the feelings um, of smart people can be wrong? And you're smart people, but did you know you could be wrong? Here's some a few examples. This is the, uh, the inventor of the ca- uh, cathode ray tube back in 1926. He says, while theoretically and technically television may be feasible... Commercially and financially, it is an impossibility, a development which we need waste a little time dreaming. Uh, Thomas Watson, the IBM chairman of the board back in 1943, said, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. That's what he said. Marshall Ferdinand Fock, he was a World War I military strategist. Here's what he said. Airplanes are interesting toys, but of no military value. Uh, Business Week in 1958 said this, with over 50 foreign cars already on sale here, the Japanese auto industry isn't likely to carve out a big slice of the U.S. market. (laughs) Uh, Irving Fisher, the economist in 1929, he said, stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. Uh, And the last one here, a recording company expert of 1962, he said, We don't think that the Beatles will do anything in their market. Guitar groups are on their way out. Listen, feelings are feelings. Opinions are opinions. God's Word is God's Word. There's a big, big difference. If God says He's going to do something, then I don't care what the experts say or the circumstances say. God will do it. God will do it. Hopers are hyper-focused on the trustworthiness of God. That's Abraham. Against hope, he believed in hope. He is so focused on the fact that God is trustworthy and and He said something, therefore I believe it. That's what overcomes doubt. You look at the trustworthiness of the source and then you say, yes, it's going to happen. That's what Abraham did. Hopers are focused. And when those Goliaths of doubt come, you can take a sling with a stone and a a word from God and sling it and hit that doubt right in the forehead. And sometimes with the people around you, you might look like an Abrahamic idiot. But that's what hopers do. Against hope, we believe in hope. Then number three, hopers. Hopers are at peace when facing death. Hopers are at peace when facing death. 1 Thessalonians verse 4 and verse 13. Listen to this. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, 
concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. There is a whole world of people that have no hope. There's a lot of people that you're going to come in contact with this week that have zero hope. And when death arrives at their door, they will have zero certainty about the future. They will not know what to do when it is a loved one that they have. They will not know what to do with this sorrow that they all of a sudden feel, this pain that's coming over them. It's sorrow without any real relief. It is, there are visitors from, from the island of Fiji tell of a, of a strange custom. It's known as calling to the dead. Um, so the person who suffered uh, you know, a death in the family will climb up to a high tree or a cliff, and then they'll look out and they'll begin to call the name of the deceased. And they call out pathetically over and over again, come back, come back, come back, come back. But there is no answer. And we do not grieve that way. That is not how a Christian grieves. That is not how a hoper, a person with hope, grieves. Hopers know that believers are just sleeping. That's what this verse says. Believers just sleep. Their body goes to sleep, and one day God is going to take that body and raise it up from its sleep, and forever that person will be with the Lord. We approach death completely different. The moment someone dies, they're absent from the body, present with the Lord. Death is not the end. It's a nap. In the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. I want to show something to you that's so precious and so good. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. Paul said, if in this life we... If in this life only... We have hope in Christ. We are of all men most miserable. If the only hope that you have is just here, like we're just going to get together here at church and have a good little time, we're going to sing a few songs, make everybody really feel good, just a, a little bit of feelings, then, uh, th- then that's basically what Paul says is you're actually just miserable. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and if, if all that it means is we have a nice time here, There's really nothing to that. But here's what verse 20 says. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. There is that word sleep again. Believers, when they die, they go to sleep. And he's the first fruits of them that sleep. What does this mean? Christ is the first fruits. Well, this is such an amazing truth, and we alluded to it in a different way this morning a little bit, but let me give you some few comforting things about Jesus as your first fruit. In the Old Testament, the offering of the first fruits was when the people would bring one sheaf of grain and they would uh, bring it to the Lord as an, as an offering. And it would represent and it would anticipate the rest of the harvest. I'm bringing it, Lord, to you as a as an offering, as we do, we bring our offerings to the Lord. We bring it and we say, Lord, this represents all that I have and I give it all to you and this is my offering to you. But there's another sense in which it basically is saying, Lord, I trust now that you 
because this is the first fruits. I'm bringing all that first fruit that came in. I'm trusting you now to make sure that all the other fruit comes, comes, to, uh, comes to pass, that it'll grow and that it'll be there. So I put all my faith in you. I'm looking toward the future and I'm trusting my future with you. The resurrection of Jesus, because Jesus is our first fruits, he represents our resurrection. Because if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, then we'll be raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Jesus uh, is our uh, representative in the resurrection. He's the offering. He's that first one that goes in uh, to heaven. And also, Jesus anticipates our resurrection because we'll have the same kind of body as he has. Uh, Very similar. We'll be like him, the Bible says. It's also very interesting that the feast of the first fruits was observed on the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. And it's interesting that Jesus rose from the dead on the exact day of the feast of first fruits, the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. When we understand the first fruits concept, what we're saying is that Jesus is the first one. He's the first one to go to heaven. He's the first fruits, and he represents us. Jesus is first. We're second. We're, we're coming behind him. And when we understand that, uh, we understand that death then is not something to be feared. We can be confident that Jesus is our representative. He goes first. We come right after him. Death does not have the same sting for us as it does with those who have no certainty about the future. There was a great preacher uh, in, in London years ago. His name was F.B. Meyer. And in his, in his last illness that he faced, he wrote some words to a friend. And here's what he said. He said, they tell me that I only have a few days to live. It may be that before this letter reaches you, I shall have entered the palace of the king. Don't bother to write. I'll see you in the morning. (laughs) See, this man understood death. A Christian is just going to sleep. I'll see you in the morning. I'll see you in the morning. This reminds me of my mom uh, who taught me everything I needed to know. Everybody's, you know, people say, I learned everything I needed to know in kindergarten. And I, I, I tell people frequently, everything I really needed to know, I learned from mom growing up. But what's, what I love about it is pretty amazing is that she also taught us how to die. She taught us how to die. You know, before she, would, before she died, she would say, I get to go first. I get to go first. And I'll see you there. That's real hope. As somebody who can stare death in the face and say, I have a hope. I have hope. That is, that is strong and powerful. What, what, can, what can anything do to the Christian? What in the world could take us down? Not even death. A person with certainty about the future is at peace with death. And the last one, number four this morning, or eat this evening... And that is this, hopers see the joy of staying away from sin. Hopers see the joy of staying away from sin in this life. It's an interesting passage right here in, about hope. Verse, 1 John and verse 3. Uh, 1 John ver, uh, chapter 3, excuse me, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, 
the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. So John here is blown away by the kind of love that God would pour out, he would bestow on us. The only kind of love that this could be described as is a fatherly love. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. It's a familial love. It's like he, it, it's a, a father gathering his children. I love you. Pouring out his love on his children. That God would call us unlovable, sinful people, sons of God, is an astounding truth. And he adds that because we are the sons of God, that's why then the people around you, the people you know at work and at school and everywhere you go, don't quite get you. They don't quite understand you. They, uh, they know us not because it knew Him not. The world, they just don't understand the children of God. Any child of God is going to automatically live differently than the world. And they just don't always get that and why we would do the things we do. Verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. John says, listen, being a son of God, being a child of God, means that we're going to live with Him forever. That's what children do, right? They live with their parents. They live with their dad. That's what you're supposed to do. And that's what you're going to do as a child of God. You're going to live with your father. But we don't really know all the details yet of how this is going to look and what it's going to be like and all the feelings that we're going to have and all the little nuances of what it's going to be like when we're with the Lord. And He comes and we're in a new earth with Him. But one thing that we know, and that is that we shall be like Him. Because, why are we going to be like Him? Because there's a family resemblance. In heaven... You're still you. You are you. And you're, you're going to be the same person. You're going to have the same soul. It's the same you. We're going to know you as you. But your character and your nature will be perfected into the image of Jesus' perfection. And that is how this thing is going to work. And that's how you'll be like Him. And perhaps even greater than that, it says here that we shall see Him as He is. There's no other great... I can't hardly think of a greater thing than we'll just be able to see Jesus. We'll be able to know God for who He is. We'll be able to be with Him. So that is the hope of the Christian. So now, John says, what should motivate us? How should that motivate you right now, where you live today? Knowing that that's happening, knowing that that's coming, knowing that you're going to get all of that. Verse 3. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. See, when you really know the love of God, when you really have understood the love of God and how he has made you a son, a son, a child that doesn't deserve the inheritance, but he gives it to you because of his son Jesus, and you are certain, because when you understand that, when you grasp that, when you believe that, and you're certain that one day you're going to fully know Him and be known as we really are, and you're going to be a perfected you, 
Well, that right there, all of those truths, that hope, that, uh, that certainty about the future, that view of how you view that motivates you to purify yourself. It, motiv- it should motivate you to get started now. See, you, you automatically want to start cleaning up your life because you already have this inner desire. I am a child of God. I am a child of God. I am, a, I am, I am His son. There should be a family resemblance even now. The world should be, should be looking at me saying, I don't really recognize you. I, mean, I, I don't understand you. If they understand us too much, that's a problem. Knowing your name makes you step up your game. That's what I'm talking about. Knowing your name, that you are a child of God, I'm a child of God, should make you step it up. We don't purify ourselves to become a child of God. We are a child of God, which makes us and motivates us to want to purify our lives. I had a conversation with a new believer this past week. I was sitting with he and his wife and... He was describing to me how he used to be so cruel to people. How his previous years that he had lived, he was he had made bad choices. He was mean to his wife, and and just a just a bad dude, making very very poor choices. But he said he, he doesn't understand it now that he's accepted Christ. I mean, he just radically this man is radically saved. I mean, everything has changed. He is a new creature in Christ. You can see it written all over him. He doesn't understand it now. He feels, because now he, he feels guilty <laughs> when, when he starts even thinking about going down the wrong road. He said, I, I was, it's, it's gotten so much that even this past week, I, I wanted to have a su- surprise for my wife. It was her birthday. So I wanted to have this little surprise thing for her. And I couldn't keep the secret because I felt like I was lying to her. And I, it was just so hard for me. I didn't want to lie. And uh, I just laughed, and he understood. But it's amazing how much we shift once we're in the family of God. It's amazing how life uh, changes. It's amazing how we start to think and how much more sensitive we are to sin. And the things that bother us that didn't used to bother us. And the things that should be bothering us. See, once we really understand the love of God, then we want to be like our father, like our dad. You've heard it said that the most miserable person in the world is the child of God living in sin. That person is way more miserable than the unbeliever who's living in sin. A child of God can never truly be happy living away from God, living away from his dad, living away from his father, like that prodigal son. We need to thank God for those feelings of guilt, really. It means that Jesus is living inside of you. So let me just ask you tonight, uh, do your choices look like your father's choices? Do you, do you work at making yourself, uh, keeping yourself pure? That's what this verse says. And every man that hath this hope in himself purifieth, or, uh, purifieth himself even as he is pure. Purifieth himself. You've got to work at it. What characterizes your life? Purity, good morals, kindness, truth, love. Those are the things that our Father is all about. That's who He is. And that should be reflected in our life. If, if we're not interested in obeying God's Word, then, then we don't yet understand God's love for us. 
people who get this whole thing and, and live in certainty about the future, they will purify themselves. I want to leave you this story here about this. It's a true story from the Middle East. Two Bedouin young men, they got in a fight. And one of them was killed in this fight. And knowing the customs of their people, uh, they, he knew that the avenger of this, man, this family, the avenger of this man, would be coming after him very soon. And so he uh, made his way across the desert. He beat it across the desert. He came to a sprawling tent of the sheikh, the tribal chief. And he came to the, uh, the, the tent opening and he called out for the sheikh. And the sheikh came and he said, sir, I am seeking asylum based on the custom of our people. Of if I tell the truth and getting the protection of the chief. And so, uh, it, as is their custom, the, the sheikh grabbed one of the guide ropes of the tent and he promised under God to give this young man asylum, to give him protection. Well, the next day, the pursuers came and demanded that that man release uh, this young man. And the sheikh said to them, I will not release him. He is under my protection and I have given my word. But they said, you don't know who he killed. He said, it doesn't matter. And they said, he killed your son. At that moment, the old man fell to the ground, visibly shaken by the whole situation. And after several minutes, though, he rose up and he looked them in the eye and he said, then this man, this young man shall become my son. And everything I have will one day be his. Let me just remind everybody, that is what God, your Father, did for you. Your sin, my sin, hurt him deeply. It even killed his son. And yet, God still takes you in. And he will give you a full inheritance. I will take you in, I will bring you, I will give you a new heavens and a new earth. You'll forever be able to live in my love. You'll, you'll be loving me. I'll be loving you. The glory of God. This is, this is our future together. And he did that in spite of all that we had done to him. That, that understanding should motivate us to reject the thing that killed his son. To reject that sin and desire for a, a life that would please our father. Now, this is what a hoper does. He rejoices. He can, look, he can stare death in the face. He can overcome doubt. And, and, a, and a person of hope purifies himself. Let me just remind everybody, this is so important. Lay hold of hope. This is how we live a happy life. This is how we live a healthy life. This is how we live the Christian life that really that God wanted us to live. It's, it's, how, it's how early Christians dealt with everything that they were facing and all the persecution and all the squeezing and all the pressure. It's knowing where I'm going. It's knowing, having such a certainty about the future. It changes everything. Would you all bow your heads and close your eyes? Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www. .thehomechurch.net From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, 
Thank you for joining us.